Genesis 17, uh, this passage where circumcision is instituted and it's done uh, to the children is one that's used by those who are proponents of infant uh, sprinkling to justify sprinkling the babies of believers uh, into the church. Uh, so could you just talk with what are the similarities and then what are the differences? How would they use this to justify because uh, this is, a, a, again, one of the proof texts for infant baptism. So how are they using that in that way, and then why is that not legitimate? Okay. Yes. This passage is used, to summarize your question, this passage is used to, in, uh, to justify the sprinkling of infants. Infant sprinkling, also called pedo-baptism or infant baptism. The, what are the arguments against it? Well... They make a comparison. They say just as the circumcision was done to infants, baptism should be done to infants now. That's the connection they make. Well, the problem is, one, this circumcision was practiced only on the males. Therefore, if baptism or infant sprinkling is to be done on anyone, it should be only the males. That's number one. But they don't believe that. So they are not, they say that there is a connection between the two, but they're not living up to the connection. Number two, they're not living up to it in that they don't sprinkle the infants on the eighth day. But they were to be circumcised on the eighth day. And why on the eighth day? To signify the new creation. As Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week, but in the terms of the week, week's pattern, it would be on the eighth, the eighth day in that sense, that it would be on the following Sunday from, from first day to seventh day, and then on the following day, the eighth day signifying a new creation. So they don't do that. They don't sprinkle their infants on the eighth day either. They'll do it a few months later, but they won't do it on the eighth day. But Catholics do, I think. Okay, well... Okay, well, well, even if they do do it on the eighth day, why are they doing it to the baby girls? They should only do it to the baby boys. Then, another problem is, there is no commandment in the New Testament by the authority of Christ and the apostles to sprinkle infants. There is no commandment to do that. Nobody can find a commandment to do that. Even the proponents of infant sprinkling cannot find a commandment to do that. And they, many of them admit that. There is no commandment to do that. There is only reading into the text. There's only eisegesis or reading into the text, forcing a passage to mean something for them to practice it. But they know there is no clear, explicit command in the New Testament to practice it. If there is no command to practice it, they shouldn't practice it. Also, the word baptism, it means to immerse. And our translations have done us a disservice by using the word baptism. Baptism is a transliteration of the Greek word for baptism. It's a transliteration. It is not a translation. If we were to translate baptisma from the Greek New Testament, we would translate it as immersion. 
because that's what baptism means in Greek. It means to immerse. It does not mean to sprinkle. However, today's sprinklers sprinkle. They don't immerse their infants. They sprinkle. Though that's inconsistent with the meaning of the Greek word. And also, it's inconsistent with the meaning of the Greek New Testament. Uh, or the practice of the Greek New Testament. For example, in John chapter 3, verse 23. John 3, verse 23. It says, And John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim, because there was much water there, and they were coming and were, were being baptized. John was baptizing there. Why? Because there was much water there. <coughs> Excuse me. Because there was much water there. Why did there have to be a lot of water there? Not if you're sprinkling, but if you are immersing. And one proponent, though, though he is wrong on this, at least he's an honest commentator, is John Calvin. John Calvin, he says about John 3.23 that the practice of the apostles was immersion. He says that that was what was happening in John 3.23 and he says that that was the apostolic practice, to immerse. Though he comes up with a reason to sprinkle infants later, at least in that passage, he has the honesty to say the apostles were immersing. In John 3, 23. If they were immersing, why should we deviate? Right. Why should we deviate? Another place where John Calvin says the same is in Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, verse 36. Acts 8, 36. 36 to 39. Acts 8, 36. And as they went along the road, they came to some water... And the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Immersed, right? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they had... And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, but went on his way rejoicing. Clearly there, the mode of baptism was immersion because it says they went into the water, down into the water, and came up out of the water. Into the water and out of the water. Here too, John Calvin, who for other reasons deviates from this and says we should infant, uh, sprinkle infants, he acknowledges that the practice of Philip and the eunuch right here was immersion of the whole body. So if that's the case, why don't we, even if we were to ba baptize infants, why don't we immerse them? Right. The reason they don't immerse them is that they're going to have a big mess on their hands, so they would rather sprinkle them instead of immersing infants. So this is why. This is part of the problem, is that we have to acknowledge what the Bible actually says explicitly, overtly, plainly, clearly, and just do that. And not deviate from it. But infant sprinklers, they deviate. They deviate because they have a false analogy. The Bible doesn't make the analogy a one-to-one -one exact correspondence between 
circumcision and baptism. It doesn't do that. And when they try to do that, their analogy doesn't work. Because they will sprinkle female babies, and they will not immerse, and they won't do it on the eighth day either. So, does baptism mean for it? One uh, theologian, I don't remember his name just now, uh, says that baptism, word baptism has many meanings, immersion, pouring, and other things also. No, it doesn't mean pouring either. It means to immerse. Baptism means to immerse. It does not mean to pour. If we wanted to pour, there's another word for pouring. There's another word for sprinkling. Greek words, different Greek words for each of those. Okay, the next question was either Jared or Matt. Yes, go ahead. Uh, just, I mean, I agree with that when we talked earlier about circumcision and uh, it pointing to something spiritual in, in nature and the promise of uh, the land and the kings and, and all that uh, ultimately being fulfilled uh, eternally in Christ in, in there and the rest. Uh, how would you answer people who view that differently in regards to Israel and the land itself and the people of Israel and maybe even taking things like Romans 9 of Israel later being grafted back in this dispensationally there's this word of God that's here and then he'll bring it back around to a, yes. another way uh, for Israel that's connected more to the, the physical yes. Israel. Yes. How would we answer them when they say that these promises of the land are actually physical and not spiritual? Actually, that's their argument. Right. That they, these promises are physical and not spiritual. My answer is several. One, in the context of Genesis 17, it actually says everlasting covenant, everlasting possession, and it says that king shall come forth from you and to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will be their God. It's using these kinds of spiritual terms. They cannot be taken to be physical terms because if they're only physical terms, then God broke his promise, his spiritual promises. And also, if they are physical, then they have to be consistent and say that every single Jew, regardless of whether he believes in Christ as his Lord and Savior, every single Jew will receive this. Because if you read it physically and have that in your mind as the only meaning, you have to be consistent. It says descendants after you. Descendant, only the physical descendants. So Ishmael is saved. Esau is saved. King Ahab and all the 20 evil kings of the northern kingdom of Israel, all of them are saved. When actually the Bible portrays them in the very opposite light, that they were all sons of the devil and evil. So there's a contradiction. Either they have to take it in the right way, the spiritual way, but they, or they have to say that even... Ahab and Jezebel are in heaven. Even Judas Iscariot, who is also a Jew, right. even Judas Iscariot is in heaven. Even Esau is in heaven. They have to take it that way. 
So they would be, uh, in a sense, at least a modified universalist. We might say Judaistic universalist. That is, they believe all the Jews are universally going to heaven. Right. Wouldn't you say that, uh, that most people on that thought, they don't say, they're not consistent in that, but they would come back and say, there's coming a day, though, when they will be grafted back in, and that's it. They will all be saved. Right? Okay. After, again, the Gentiles, right? Yes. So, okay. I'll shoot, grafted in the vine. Once that's set, then, then he's going to bring all. Okay. Okay. A time may come, they say, that right. they'll all be grafted in again. Now, who are the they all who will be grafted in? Are they the contemporaries of some future generation? Or are they the Jews of every generation who will come back or be grafted in? Well, what did you say? was we say it's some coming generation that's coming they, Yes. They won't be consistent. Yes. They say it's all that, but it's some coming. Yes. So they say it's a certain future generation. All of those Jews currently living at a given time, they all will be saved. Okay, but that still breaks the physical aspect of their interpretation here. It still breaks it because it doesn't say just a certain future generation like that. There's no way to interpret it in, in Genesis that way. It's actually talking about all of his descendants. So then you have to ask, who are all of Abraham's descendants? They have to be spiritual descendants for that, for that to make sense. So... If they are grafted in, into the body of Christ, notice also, Paul said in Romans 11, grafted in again? Why does he say that? In what way were they grafted in the first place, in Christ in the first sense? They were never a part of Christ in the first sense. They might have professed, some Jews do profess faith in Christ, but they don't really believe. And, but then if they repent, of course, they'll be grafted in again. But every Jew does not believe in Christ. Yes, okay. Does, does that help? Or did you want me to expand further on Romans 11? No, that, that's fine. Okay. Okay, another one. Jared? So, uh, this is kind of a follow-up to Jerry's question. And then I have another one real quick. On the infant baptism, some of them, some will point to 1 Corinthians 10, where they talk about all were baptized into Moses. That's an argument. I've seen guys do that. They say, well, that's why we need to baptize our children. They were all baptized into Moses. But what would you say to that? Yes, that they were all baptized, but he does not make the connection between everyone being baptized under Moses and all of us being baptized, regardless of age. He doesn't make that connection. All he says is that they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. What they need to show, what they need to prove, is that since all were baptized under Moses or into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, since they were all baptized into Moses, they all need to be baptized into Christ. The scripture doesn't make that connection. They are making the connection. And when they make those kinds of connections, they are doing it just like Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. 
They're making these connections just like Catholics and any other cultists. They're making these connections wrongly because they're not submitting their mind to the mind of Christ in the Word of Christ. They're, they're jumping to conclusions that are not there in the text. The other question I had was on the laughter. Genesis 18 um, talks about in verse 12 that Sarah laughed. And it, and it goes on to say, um, verse 13, the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I be bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? That sounds like a different laughter, is that? Okay, now there's two interpretations of this. Genesis 18, Sarah's laughter. 18.12 says, And Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also. There's two interpretations. The one is that she did not sin in her laughter, and I prefer that one. Yes. Okay, the second one is that she sinned temporarily, but not consistently, because later she had faith to conceive, and she bore Isaac. That's, those are the two interpretations. Now, why do I hold to the first one rather than the second? The reason is, remember we read Hebrews 11, 11, by faith Sarah herself uh, um, received ability to conceive beyond the proper time of life. Hebrews 11, 11 says that, right? Also, it says in Genesis 21, notice this, Genesis 21, 6. Genesis Genesis 21, 6. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. She doesn't sound like she's mocking God there. It's good. Right? So she's re reminding us of this incident in chapter 18, 18, 12. And then the third reason is in this statement, um, after I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also. She, what does she call Abraham? Her Lord. And from 1 Peter 3, 6, we read that thus Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And he's citing this verse, 18, 12. My Lord also. And you have become her children if you do likewise. When it goes on to say, The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? And say, Shall I be your child? Mm -hmm. He goes on to say, Is anything too hard for the Lord? Yes, yes. And then it says, at, Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. <coughs> because of that, some take that to mean that she temporarily didn't believe it. But it could also be that she was afraid that she was, uh, should not be misunderstood. And then the, the Lord clarifies, no, no, I heard you laugh. Yeah. Uh, and I'm making sure that you understand that nothing is too difficult for the Lord. So don't be afraid of any of that. But don't, uh, but don't deny that you laughed. I know that you laughed. 
So those who take her as temporarily not believing look at that exchange and say, this is proof that she temporarily did have unbelief. Did they compare this to uh, Zechariah when he was told that Elizabeth would have a child? And, and he didn't believe, yeah. But yet he was righteous. Yes, yeah. Zechariah, in, in Luke chapter 1, when Gabriel announced to him that Elizabeth, his wife, would conceive and bear John the Baptist, it says that... Um, in Luke 1 20 and behold you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words which shall be fulfilled in their proper time but eventually he had to believe but meantime he couldn't speak and how do we know he was righteous because it says in Luke 1 6 and they were both righteous in the sight of God walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord Zacharias and Elizabeth were both righteous. All right, next question. We go back to infant baptisms briefly. You know, those who do believe in that, one of the things that they believe is that that isn't salvific. You know, for those who don't believe, but that it speaks in terms of entering the blessings of the church, and that would seem to fit with Ishmael and and the blessing that Ishmael received from being the child of Abraham. What were your thoughts on? Okay, now they do profess. They do profess that um, it's. The, the, when the infant is sprinkled, that that does not bring salvation to the infant. Okay? They do profess that. Um, however, um, if you read their statements of faith, for example, the Westminster Confession of Faith, in chapter 28 of their confession, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 28, they actually do describe salvation to whoever is baptized. They describe it like that. They say that the person baptized is regenerated, ingrafted into Christ, or grafted into Christ. They use terminology like that. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 28, in the first paragraph, they say that about baptism. So they might tell you, no, 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 they're not being saved. But why does your confession say that? Do you believe your confession or not? And if they say, no, I don't believe that part of the confession, okay, then if you don't believe that part, then just get rid of infant baptism also and be, and be like me. <laughs> yeah, because if you can negotiate with your own confession like that, then negotiate completely and be biblical. Yeah. Okay, one last one, and then our time is up. So, correct me if I'm wrong, and I know you will. Surely infant baptism amongst Baptists is God honoring that there, there's no there's no uh, I've never heard anybody that that would apply that to any salvific blessing upon the child but it's like Lord we dedicate this child to you you gave us this child and we give him back to you but not linking any salvific association with it 
I mean, hopefully, that's our hope that God will save our children. Okay, you said certainly infant baptism among no, Baptists. No, no. Uh, uh, not infant baptism. Dedication. Oh, dedication. Okay, yeah, you did s- I not say that? No. I'm sorry. sorry. Yeah. Baby dedication. Baby dedication. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Okay, well, sorry. a baby dedication is fine, but it's not a requirement. Right. There is right. no commandment in the Bible commanding us to do that. Right. So it is fine to do if you wish to do, um, but it is not a requirement. It's not an ordinance of the church to do it. Right. And there is no salvation attached to it. There is a prayer for salvation, but there is no guarantee of salvation. And it's for the parents more than it's for the child, actually. Yeah, it's for the parents' consolation and for their prayer requests, but it's for the benefit of, of the salvation of the soul of their infant, their baby. Well, it's an expression of thanksgiving. Lord, thank you for this child. Okay, yes, it's that too. It's an expression of thanksgiving and a desire for that baby to know Christ. Yes, yes. Yes? Could I ask one more? Yes. When you, when you say circumcision of the heart, what would be a conceit or, or, or a good definition of what God means there? Would it be a cutting off of an unbelieving heart, or how could you describe that in the. Okay. Uh, what does circumcision of the heart mean? What's a good description of it? Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36. 26. Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Now, I know that that passage doesn't use the word circumcision. It uses the terms heart of stone, heart of flesh. But I think that that's an an analogy describing circumcision also. Circumcision of the heart. That that's the analogy. Taking away... Replacing... Yes. So, God gives us... uh, or. How about 2 Corinthians 5.17? If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. All things passed away. Behold, new things have come. So that'd be like a symbol of an acknowledgement of, of the old nature being taken away. Yes. 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 It's it's a symbol of the old nature, the old man, the old self being taken away, taken away in this sense that its control and power over you does not reign because you have a new nature, a new heart. It still remains in you because we fight it. The flesh fights against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh for these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. So this is a fight, but the full control or power of the old heart, the old nature, the uncircumcised heart, the stony heart is not dominating our life anymore, but it is the life of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit that's manifested in the circumcised heart or the new heart, the heart of flesh. That's what's being described. 